Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Goals on Film, Edge of the Crowd's dedicated sports movies podcast. I'm your host, Jason, and I've got Dan and Stuart joining me. How are the both of you doing today? Uh, yeah, I'm fantastic, mate. I'm starting to become like part of the furniture around here, Jason. Um, but I'm excited to talk about the uh, about the movie today, as per usual. And um, yeah, yeah. So I'd see what you guys think about it. Dan, how are you doing, mate? I'm good. I'm quite glad. I seem to be developing a, a reputation here as a US sports specialist. I had remember the Titans and draft day and we're back here for, for today's movie. Um, and it works great for me because they're movies that I love and have watched. I don't even know how many times and today's is no exception. Um, so it's good to be back. And, you know, it is always fun with you and Jason. So uh, looking forward to it today. Thank you for those kind words, Dan. Uh, <laughs> let's get stuck right into it. This week, we are taking a look at 2005 biographical basketball drama film, Coach Carter. A little bit of a synopsis about the film. It takes a look at the true story of Richmond High School coach Ken Carter, who makes headlines in 1999 for suspending his undefeated high school basketball team due to poor academic results. Carter, when he joins as coach of the basketball team, expects the team to sign contracts and maintain a 2.3 GPA, sit in front of the class, attend all classes, and wear a suit and tie on game days, to which this to enjoy the privilege of playing basketball. But when Carter learns that the team aren't pulling their weight and he begins to forfeit games and public outcry ensures from players and parents to school officials, but Carter's hard-nosed approach and tough love, even towards his own son, pays off as his team and the entire school learn there is life outside of the basketball court. It's a story of a coach who inspires his team to win the big game, make the state championship and show the privileged school from the other side of town just how to win with a bit of heart. It's the story of a basketball coach who was persistent and had his priorities straight. And there is a positive message throughout it. The message conveyed being that lives can be changed for the better through self-discipline, hard work and the building of character. So with all that in mind and having obviously watched the movie uh, recently as well and perhaps uh, growing up as well, Dan, Stuart, what did you make of the movie? What did you like? What didn't you like? Dan, we'll go with you first. Well, I have to say it gave me some ideas. I was thinking maybe I'll make everyone else sign a contract, turn up in suits <laughs> on news meeting days. What do you reckon about that? You reckon that would go down well? Uh, mm. I don't know. I might walk out. <laughs> well, I mean, I can just suspend you, but uh, as you know, Coach Carter says the name is on the wall, um, and I think that that was one of the things for me is that you know it is all well and good to demand high standards of people, but you've got to be able to back it up with credentials and your own behaviour. And I think actually that was one of the messages that really struck with me is that you know. You can't just ask people to do things and to go out on a limb if you're not willing to meet them all the way out there. I mean, and that's what makes Coach Carter special. He's got, you know, those scoring records. He lives that, uh, I'm going to say, uptight, upright uh, life that he demands of everyone else. And that kind of does give you a little bit of the credential to do it. You can't get away with it if you're going to just be a hypocrite, but... There's that, and everyone loves a gooey, happy ending, so that uh, doesn't hurt either. Yeah, 100%. He practices what he preaches, um, and that helps him get his message across. I know listeners to Golds on film across the world, uh, listening on their earpods or on their 
on their uh, Google Home or, or Alexas or whatever, and they're waiting for me to shit all over the movie. I'm not going to do that this week. Uh, I really, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I was saying off mic to Jace just before that uh, I'm a sucker for these. You know, it's a tried and tested formula, isn't it? The uh, you know the scrappy underdogs come good, and then you know they win the championship or win over the hearts of their coach or or whatever. I, I'm just a, I'm a dead set sucker for it. So I was totally into it. I, it was a joy to uh, to watch it again today. Yeah, I think that I'm the same. I mean, I always love like a good sort of underdog story with a bit of like inspiration. Uh, tied into it and you know it just really sort of lifts your spirits lifts your mood and I think that coach Carter does that really well um, all throughout the whole film and yeah I think that in a way like it is a bit different to your normal Hollywood movie Uh, obviously this is based on a true story and we'll get to that a little bit later as well but I think that sort of the understanding of knowing that it is a true story I think that it was done really well uh, throughout the whole throughout the entire movie um you know there were moments where like even if I had sort of known about the story a little bit like even like I was surprised by a lot of the things that happened and um sort of a lot of the things that happened in the movie and just how they were sort of touched on and all this sort of stuff and then you know even at the end like I said um, before like you know it wasn't your typical Hollywood movie either because it didn't exactly have a totally sort of happy ending um, with the team losing the final game or bowing out of the um, that sort of stage of the season, um, whereas in a sort of in another sense or in a lot of other movies you would have them winning like you know on right on the buzzer and all this sort of stuff and you know seeing the jubilation but you got the opposite of that um, which I think just sort of brought you sort of back to reality in sort of knowing that this was a true story and that there is sort of um, the disappointment in sports as well. Well, And also it's not a a sanitized movie. I mean, there's no, there's no pretense about the fact that it's not in a bad part of town and there isn't the draws of gun violence and the scourge of teenage pregnancy and things like that. It's not, it's not a pretend that these don't happen and that these aren't real things. And I think that, that lack of sanitary viewing also adds a real element to it. It makes it seem a little bit more realistic and not kind of transplanted out somewhere for the sake of a story. Yeah, I think you got that spot on there, Dan. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, confused as to who, who the production company was. I noticed an MTV logo at the start of the movie, but my point of bringing the production company up you know, kind of pertaining to what you just said, is uh, you can imagine this movie going very wrong if it was a uh, if it was a Disney movie, or just being maybe not very wrong, but maybe being a very different, maybe a bit too sweet, too saccharine uh, dis- uh, movie if Disney had got their hands on on this story. I mean, we definitely would have seen a layup line to a montage of inspirational music before the game if it was a Disney movie. <laughs> exactly what I was picturing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of the themes and, like, a lot of the language and stuff used, like, just wouldn't cut it in, you know, a regular sort of Disney film. But that wasn't this. Um, that was something enti- This was something entirely different. And, you know, you, all, you needed that, I think, for the story to work. I mean, some of that wouldn't fly today either. I think there are some things about the movie that add a lot of colour to it and make it a really good movie, but you probably wouldn't see 
shot in a movie if it was made today. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly, I watched this for the first time around the same time that I watched Pulp Fiction. I went on a bit of a Samuel L. Jackson run. Um, and, and there was something relatable about Coach Carter and the character in Pulp Fiction um, <laughs> that that made, you know, the upright, uptight Samuel L. Jackson with a, a propensity for a good speech um, very watchable. Yeah, well, we'll get to uh, diving into a bit more about Samuel L. Jackson's portrayal of Ken Carter a little bit later when we talk about the acting performances, but... We'll move on now and look at a bit of the historical aspects of this movie. Obviously, uh, as we've said a couple of times already, it is based on a true story. So we have done a little bit of research about what parts of it were actually true and whether there were any things that were sort of falsified or changed up in terms of to make it uh, fit more in sort of the narrative of a movie and flowing along with what we come to expect from movies. So we'll just dive into a little bit of it quickly now, uh, just about Ken Carter himself uh, to begin with. He was a former Richmond High School basketball player. He did set the scoring record from the school um, and his son Damien uh, went on, you know, went on to the team as well. Um, And his son Damien did actually withdraw from a private school to play for the Oilers like in the movie. Um, Obviously, the team getting locked out of the gym for poor academic performance uh, really happened and it did make national news the next day and that is effectively what inspired uh, talks for this movie to begin um, to sort of become a real thing um, in just a yeah, movie form. Um, it was revealed early in the movie that Coach Carter was a true sport All-American and even received a basketball scholarship to George Mason University. In real life, Carter did attend three colleges, but George Mason University was not amongst them. So uh, what the real one, Ken Carter said, was that 98.5% of what you see is true to my own life and what happened to me. Pretty much the biggest change was simply the names of the players and the teachers because we didn't want to embarrass anyone. Uh, That was Ken Carter's uh, words. (laughs) I am sure that the actors who played, that the people who were played by the actors still recognised themselves, even if the names were different. And I'm sure they still felt that embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, that's something I was thinking. So I actually read the uh, that same quote and I thought, yeah, okay. They might have changed the names, but if you were the people that were a part of the real story, you'd be sitting there watching the movie thinking, okay. They've done me dirty a little bit here. They told me they're not going to put me in the movie, but here I am. So <laughs> imagine being the guy who sunk the game winning three a bunch of games in a row and being portrayed as the no work ethic, no care. No t- I mean, can you imagine hitting game winning threes multiple times and being portrayed as selfish? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's being done dirty right there. <laughs> So just to, just to add on to your quote there, Jace, uh, one thing that uh, Carter insisted stay true to life, and this kind of circles back to what we were talking about um, when we were just talking about the movie in general and talking about the ending, mm-hmm. um, and he actually fought with the studio over it. Um, he, wanted, he did not want to see a cliche Hollywood ending with a state championship and every kid packing off to a four-year college on a full scholarship. So, um, you know, I kind, of, uh, I kind of respect that. I think that's a, that, that, that's a cool move by the... Uh, by the real life Ken Carter. 
Yeah, I think it was good that they got the real Ken Carter to sort of act as like a bit of a consultant on this movie. And um, it seems that he had talks with the writers, with the producers. Um, and yeah, especially for that final scene um, and, you know, them losing the final. Um, I've got a quote here from Ken Carter as well saying uh, that it was a two month fight and discussions were going back and forth as we worked on other things. But Truth to the word, when you lose your final game, the season is over. So that was it. Yeah. So, I mean, the real Ken Carter wanted to tell a story that was accurate. Um, that was the main thing that he wanted to sort of, you know, present as a consultant on the film, obviously, about his life and about this particular season and all that. Um and he turned over all his files, his personal notes that he had about the season, about each and every kid. He turned in the contracts that uh, he made the players sign. He turned all that over to the writers. And through that, um, you know, the writers and the producers and the director and everyone associated with the film were able to go through each of those bits of information and make the film really accurate based on all that information that sort of Ken Carter had compiled throughout the years and, and kept as well. It gives me a lot of admiration for Ken Carter because, um, I mean, we haven't talked about this movie yet on Goals on Film, but I'm sure it is coming, um, Rudy. And, of course, the story of Rudy is that they did get very creative with the ending and that the person upon which the story is based has let that embellish his reputation and he's lived off Hollywood's ending and not, you know, fought to keep it real but rather living it up to the best that he can and that gives me a lot of admiration for Ken Carter that he was like nope we didn't win we're not going to let him think we did this is you know this is it it's going to be accurate that is fantastic it is an admirable trait uh you know but particularly when compared with uh some other sports movies like uh like Rudy that you mentioned where the real life people are kind of uh, making a living off of a off of a Hollywood ending that never really happens. So yeah, that's a great shout. I have to say, the, one of the things that I do enjoy about basketball movies on the whole, and we kind of moving into Jason's next next topic. And I'm sorry I've stolen your segue, Jason. Um, <laughs> but basketball is one of those movies that it's a bit easier to stick to real life. You don't have to worry about pads and complicated rules and things like that. It does. I mean, and because it's such a universal, simple game, the actors are all really familiar with what basketball is and how to do it. And I think that really comes through. You, you sometimes forget watching the scenes that their actors playing basketball and not basketballers playing basketball. Mm-hmm. It's really fluid and kind of quite accurate compared to what we see in the NBA or, or in college basketball. I've, uh, I've been on goals on film for a couple of baseball movies now. And, uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of analysis about how the baseball looks on film, which is, uh, you know, a little bit above my pay grade. I didn't really, I didn't really get it, but I got, I got a new appreciation for, uh, you know, uh, baseball and how, how it's portrayed on film. But I think, you know, yeah, I think you nailed it there, Dan. Everyone plays basketball, right? No matter who you are, you've picked up a basketball, you've shot it before, you know what it looks like, and uh, it does transfer really well. It does look really natural uh, on, the, on the big screen for sure. We'll have to drum that baseball appreciation out of you, I promise, over the next few weeks to get rid of it. <laughs> Jason's going to proceed to throw me off this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
just wait till next week when uh, you know we're potentially doing basketball and we might need to talk about baseball and basketball in the same uh, vein. <laughs> I've heard a bunch of people volunteer for that goals on film and I have not seen that movie. So um, you might just have to talk about me behind my back instead of to my face <laughs> next week. <laughs> um, okay, so while we are on the topic then, I guess, about how basketball is portrayed in the movie we might just continue that a little bit as well and maybe come back to a bit more of the historical aspects Um, but just while we're on uh, this train of thought um, there are a couple of things like I obviously I agree with you I think that the game of basketball is sort of really easy to follow Um, you know sometimes you only just need one sort of panning camera that's sort of set up at the middle of the court and you know it's easy enough like that Um, but then you know you've got the close-up shots you've got uh every player sort of moving running around the court dribbling the ball um i thought that the cameras like really stuck to that really well um i was watching the movie and i was like you know the transition between like different scene or different shots uh of like the same game like there was just it was so seamless as well like the continuity was there and i was remember thinking during watching this movie i was like they must have like heaps of cameras just like focusing on in or focusing on like the one person or predicting about like where the next shot or next pass will go. And um, yeah, so to me, like those things were like super, it seemed like they were super pre-planned um, with both like the shot selection, the camera angles and just how sort of everyone seemed to be on the same page with such a fast moving game. There's a little part of me that wonders whether that's what they did. They basically said, you know, right, we're going to get you to play four minutes of basketball. These couple of people are going to make a shot and we're just going to shoot with X number of cameras and just like play because that's how you get that continuity and that natural feel. And I mean, there's no doubt that the technology and the capabilities, I mean, they do it for the NBA all the time. So I'm sure that a a studio could have said, you know, we're just going to film it like it's an NBA game in the same way we use the same tech and you guys just play and that's how it'll look natural. No fouls, nothing dirty, you know, none of that sort of stuff. I was going to, uh, I was going to actually, you know, um, put that question to you guys about uh, whether you thought they just gave them the ball and said, you just play and and we've got all these cameras here and just shoot. So yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably most likely what did happen. Yeah. I I reckon they, you know, I mean, we, we get obviously early on the, uh, the training about um, Ken's sisters Mm -hmm. and how they all play defense. Hey, young sirs, we're going to take it to the next level. Everything I know about basketball, I learned from women. I have a sister, her name's Diane. She was always on my case about every little thing. Matter of fact, she still is. Turn down that radio. Did you eat the last piece of cake? Did you drink all the Kool-Aid? <laughs> she was always in my face. So when I called Diane, we're gonna play straight man-to-man pressure defense. No, 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 sir. Look at your defensive posture. Come on. Split your man. Back straight, butt down. This hand slides against the passing lane. This hand protects the crossover. All right? Palms up. Head in the game. 
Uh-huh. And yeah. <laughs> I think that, that's probably, you know, th- there was probably an element of, right, we're going to teach you the fundamentals of the game. And you're going to play against, you know, a team of, you know, D3 college guys. And you're going to play like basketballers or, you know, varsity, you know, some low level that equivalent skill. You're mm-hmm. going to play basketball. At the end of the day, this person's going to hit this winning shot or make sure you dunk or something. And we'll tick the scoreboard over how we feel. I reckon that's probably how they did it. Yeah, I think you're spot on. One uh, little nugget of information you, uh, you you stumbled upon there was the names of the players. Uh, I really enjoyed those and how they just, there was more and more come up. And then I think at the last, I'm not sure if it was the last game, but the one that got me was, okay, let's do it. Hattie Jean. Hattie Jean, everyone. And they're all <laughs> patting their heads. Hattie Jean, Hattie Jean. Oh, mate, that got me. That really got me. <laughs> it gave me flashbacks to... Uh, remember the titans yeah <laughs> i don't know if you've seen remember the titans but he, he gives the speech to uh ronnie bass uh, to sunshine and he says i had 12 brothers and sisters and when coach carter is teaching about this isn't he's got like 12 sisters I'm like, this, <laughs> this is real remember the titans vibes <laughs> i think the players at one point are even saying how many sisters does yeah. this guy have? Yeah. <laughs> i reckon there's a similar you know like he probably didn't have that many but it it comes across as such a good metaphor that it's it's pretty believable it's, yeah that yeah. you know he might have used it as a metaphor for real life and if he didn't Whoever came up with that in the writing room deserves a raise because that yeah. was a, a great concept. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah. <laughs> Pretty clever. And, yeah, it all worked. Every single player there um, that he named after someone, it worked. And the players knew <laughs> the players knew what to do. And sometimes that's, you know, just that simple. Um, then probably drawing it up on a whiteboard and running them through things that way, like, you know, it makes it a bit more, um, yeah, puts it in their heads a bit more. Uh, just a couple more things about like how the how the sport was sort of portrayed. Um, there was one particular moment, or there was a couple of moments that sort of stuck out at me in terms of thinking like, oh, like I don't actually like. It sort of took me by surprise a little bit um, in terms of understanding like the game and maybe like the players involved and like the rules and that sort of thing. So I'll like I'll put some of them to you and like you can have your input as well in terms of what you think about it and whether you think that that's a fair sort of tactic or like you know just what you thought about it in general um there was one instance in the game against the cougars at the bay hill championships carter calls a timeout with two minutes and 22 seconds left on the clock and the film seems like richmond has possession from that point uh, Richmond make a bucket, make the next bucket, and then the time shows that there's a minute and seven seconds left. Now, basketball, at least in the NBA, it has a 24-second shot clock. Collegiate basketball has a 30-second shot clock. But even so, I'm sure that Richmond couldn't have had over a minute in possession with the ball. So to me, that was a bit of a, you know, maybe something happened in between there, but it de- definitely didn't feel that way. I'm no expert in uh, American high school uh, ball, but um, you know I could. I feel like I can confidently say, with no research, that uh, they don't have a 75 second shot clock. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's not exactly a 70. I mean, there might not be a shot clock. Hmm. I would be surprised if that was the case. Though I think it probably is a 30 second or maybe a 60 second. But that does seem like a continuity error. 
but also like calling a timeout with two and a half minutes to go. Like in the NBA, that's when I go to the bathroom because there's still 25 minutes left in the game. (laughs) 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 It's not like two more takes and one more trip down the floor. Like you need a whole other snack for that last two and a half minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, the amount of times that I've been out with a group and like it'll be a close, like watching a game of say NBL or something and it'll be a close game and they're like, okay, let's go. And I'm like, yeah, there's 10 seconds to go. And they're like, cool, I'll be back in 10 minutes. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's the same with NFL. Like I feel like in a close game, the last minute can take eight, 10 minutes depending on how it goes. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's but- just an American thing, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, give me the footy, the five-minute warning and tell me that, you know, <laughs> I've got five minutes of game time left and see how long it takes. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that caught my attention was, uh, I think it was one of the early on games, I think that a ball was um, about to be out of play and then a player sort of leaps and sort of parries it sort of back into play um, and the coach sort of like props him up um, to so not to fall into the stands or anything like that um it's sort of like yeah I sort of had this thought that you know can sort of coaches you know sort of interfere with a play or a player in that way and keeping them up upright and effectively like you know keeping them on the ball or something like that I mean I I could see that I've been to enough of these basketball teams where the coaches are right there on the sideline and there there are people another meter but further back I'm not sure that a coach can stop a player at full speed like that. Like, I mean, I think that the physics is the harder part of that than the believable. Cause I mean, you're definitely close enough that a coach might try to stop a player from barreling into six rows of people and knocking them all over like bowling pins, whether they can stop a full sprint basketball player or not is another question though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think the physics makes that a little bit tricky. Um, I don't think that there's an actual rule, though, that they can't do that. Maybe it's one of those things that's kind of, it's like an unspoken law where, you know, you can you can kind of protect the player from hurting himself or hurting other people, but they kind of use the honour system um, with regards to affecting play, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think a player running out of play and into the stance is not not where anyone's super concerned about the the rules of the game. That's that is the point where it crosses into player safety and actor safety to an extent. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I, I think at that point, like I might've had like my softball umpire hat on because there is a rule um, that sort of disallows coaches from like helping players um, and sort of like pushing them along. Like if they're running the bases and that sort of thing. So that's sort of what like ticked over in my mind. And I was like, Oh, do they have that sort of similar thing in basketball maybe? And um, I mean, so- I don't know how much NFL you've watched, but there are so many people on those sidelines and it's a mix of catching them and getting knocked into next week by them. Uh, So I imagine (laughs) basketball is probably a bit the same. Uh, And the last thing that I have on this topic in particular is the mentions of LeBron James at the start. So um, we we see uh, one of the Richmond players get interviewed um, and basically the question is asked, like, how does it feel to be compared to LeBron James? Ross State Francis High School basketball phenom Ty Crane, who they recruited just last year, is widely held as the next LeBron James. We simply know him as the Crane. Crane, great game, great game. Tell everyone out there what it feels like to be the next LeBron James. LeBron James? 
I'm the only Ty Crane. All right, you heard it here first. The only Ty Crane. In 1999, Lebr- or, yeah, uh, LeBron James wasn't LeBron James yet. Exactly. So uh, LeBron James was a freshman in 2000. Um, so in 2000, he averaged 21 points and six rebounds for the St. Vincent St. Mary's varsity basketball team. So that was in 2000. Um, obviously, well on the way to being a great player um, already, um, getting posting up these sort of uh, stat lines in high school as a freshman. Um, but this was in 2000, and this movie uh, was based on the events in 1999. I have to say, I really appreciate it. I know it's out of time, but I really appreciate it because LeBron James was the first player who was in, I mean, the first player in a while who, in high school looked like he should have been playing in the NBA instead of high school. Um, and he was kind of the last of the generation. And then not long afterwards, they mandated a year in college, um, which still lives for now. And, you know, every year they talk about getting rid of it, but in 2005, he'd had two years in the NBA and it was, he was already by that point, the best, second best, maybe third best player in the NBA. And there's an argument to say that from the minute he got into his junior year in high school, he was NBA ready. And I mean, it shows, I don't know if you guys have seen the clips of LeBron in high school, but it's a joke. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) At the time, time they were impossible to avoid those, uh, those LeBron James clips, you know, Um, when he was breaking into the NBA and stuff. Yeah. That, that was a full-grown man playing against guys who were still going through puberty. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that, that, that reference that quickly, I think, was a bit of a nod to just how fast LeBron had risen. And I know it, it's out of the, the time and everything, but I appreciate that in 05, people were ready to make that kind of nod to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did notice there was a little bit uh, out of whack with the real life timeline, shall we say, but I didn't have a problem with him much for the same reasons that uh, Dan just illustrated. Then Um, if he wasn't the guy, he was pretty close to being the guy in 2005 and 99, 2000. I mean, if you squint, is there that much of a difference? So look, I I don't remember much about LeBron's early high school years. I was a bit young, but to average 21 and six as a 14 year old, is enough that you would have the world's attention already. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, there's no question. 100%, yeah. <laughs> and, and we compare it, I mean, his son, Bronny, is a, a a sophomore in high school this year, I think it is. And people have been talking about Bronny going to the NBA for about four years since he was, like, arriving in middle school. And he's not as good as his dad. Not that that's a bad... I mean, he's going to be a handy NBA player. He's a, a first-round draft prospect in his own right, even without the name. But the attention that he's had that early, and we're seeing it more and more now with you know, viral stars on TikTok and, and Twitter and Instagram, that you know some guys in their first year of high school are national names, like Zion Williamson. Um, we have been seeing what that guy can do on a basketball court and he was asked at about the same point, what's it like to be the next LeBron James? So um, I like that. Uh, we'll just quickly round up this particular segment uh, with a couple, with looking at a couple more of the historical aspects stuff really quickly. Um, 
obviously we talked about the students being portrayed in the film being sort of composite. So uh, while the problems that the students were facing were quite real, the stories weren't exactly what they were in real life. And um, none of, you know, Coach Carter's uh, students were, you know, named in terms of, you know, they had all their uh, names changed and all that sort of stuff. But some of his former players did comment about uh, how the film portrayed Coach Carter's style of coaching. Um, so one player, for instance, uh, said that this was uh, the team co-captain, actually, Chris Gibson, said the movie is like if he, Coach Carter, didn't show up, we could have been dead or doing drugs. And so um, it's a bit of a, like, obviously like a stretch that, like, he feels like the movie makes um, in terms of looking at the team as a whole and just sort of the uh, culture, I guess, um, and some of the themes that the film portrays. But he obviously makes... He obviously thinks that the film makes those um, issues like a lot bigger than they were in real life. I think it had to. I think if if this was a functional basketball team that was good but not great with one or two bad character guys, no one cares about who Coach Carter is. Like, what big whoop? He makes them sign contracts. They're all doing that stuff anyway. Like, they did kind of have to dramatise that for it to be a compelling story because... If they're all straight A students already, you know, why are they bringing in a basketball coach? Like, I don't like, uh, there's no scrappy underdog here. A hundred percent. Even um, a basketball coach who worked under uh, Ken Carter, Daryl Robinson, he said that the kids buying drugs and shooting people, that never happened. The kids were a good group to begin with. There were no troublemakers. There was none of that. So again, um, we sort of put that down to the film uh dramatizing that you have to listen if they want to be spoken about on prestigious podcasts like goals on film <laughs> then they've got to allow for a little bit of dramatization absolutely yeah i mean this isn't a blockbuster movie if they're all straight a kids you know if they're straight a kids and they lose every game by two you know they lose half the games by two or three points and they win their other half why are they bringing in a hard-nosed basketball coach why are they bringing in contracts and suits and tell me mm. i get that you know there has to be a license because otherwise we don't care in the movie like so what are you trying to say you think there's a little bit of uh, revisionist history with the uh with the ex-coaches and players going on there maybe um they're looking back at it with rose-colored glasses a little bit no what i'm saying is i think that uh the studio took some license with how troubled these kids were because we don't care I mean, I can see a coach who had a system who came from, you know, a rough high school or, or had a particular way and wanted to bring in all those things. But we don't care as viewers if they're already most of the way there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that point. Yeah. 100%. Um, there were several of Coach Carter's players from the 1998-99 season who went on to gain notoriety of their own. So, you know, real-life players that played under him. Uh, probably the most notable uh, would be Wayne Oliver, who went to Cameron University and later played basketball in semi-professional and international leagues. Then there was a guy by the name of Courtney Anderson. He became an NFL tight end and played for the Oakland Raiders, Detroit Lions, and Atlanta Falcons from 2004 to 2007. Uh, just a couple of other parts to finish up. 
Um, the film only depicts Richmond having a varsity basketball team, though in actuality, the school also had junior varsity and freshman teams, all of which uh, Ken Carter coached. The film does inaccurately portray some of the team's scores and records a couple of times. Um, so, for example, when the lockout begins, the team's 16-0, though in reality they were 13-0. Um, and a couple of the scores in a couple of the games that they played um, were a bit different as well. And just ending on this one in particular with uh, Ken Carter locking the gym effectively with a padlock, plastering the signs on there. Um, the gym, in actuality, it wasn't locked the entire time as much as Ken Carter would have liked it to be because, as we know, gym is multi-purpose. There were other sports, there were other classes that needed to use the gym, so <laughs> it wasn't locked all the time. It would have been far more believable if he'd locked up all the basketballs in a cage and just locked that one. <laughs> that I would have believed was real. <laughs> I was thinking that. I was thinking about the gym when I was watching it. I was like, come on, that's a, that's a little bit selfish. What about, uh, what about everyone else that uses the gym? But the point I wanted to touch on there which really, it kind of tickled me a little bit. You were telling me that um, they weren't 16 and 0, they were 13 and 0. What an odd thing to change. Like, I just wonder <laughs> what the thinking is behind that, you know? Oh, they were 13. No, that doesn't work. 16. 16's the number that works. I don't understand. I don't understand. I, I wonder if that's got something to do with things that we don't understand, like the length of high school basketball seasons and seedings and tournaments and... You know, right. they had to make it look like this so that it went a certain way. But it, you're right. It's a very, like, I when, when Jason said, I was like, really? Someone <laughs> bothered to change that as well? Like, it was the same reaction. Very strange. Very strange. Someone, I remember, I'm, I'm imagining someone sitting at your production meeting going, no, it has to be 16. It can't be 13. It can't be 14. It has to be 16 games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what a dumb thing. Now, one aspect of Coach Carter that you wanted to look at, Stewie, was the soundtrack. Do you want to run us through uh, what we heard on the soundtrack? Uh, yeah, so listen, um, I'm in my early to mid-late 30s, so I was, uh, I was a, a teenager slash you know, young man in his early 20s when this movie was set and when this movie came out. And that was just some fantastic needle drops that really gave me those nostalgia feels. Um, DMX when the uh, opening credits was uh, yeah. were playing, that was a, that, that was just like it seemed like it was uh, you know if there was an inner city movie happening, it was it was a bit of an early two thousands trope that uh, DMX was um, doing the uh, doing the song over the opening credits, so that uh, that hit me. Um, and then I'm just I'm just scrolling through um, the soundtrack now because no specific songs are, 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 are springing out at me, but. Just people I've never, I haven't thought of for 20 years. Um, people like Chingy and Jermaine Dupree and The Game. I guess The Game's a little bit different. Um, you know, there's, there's just all these little John. Um, there's that, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that high school dance scene with uh, Get Low. I don't know if you, you all are aware of that song. I guess most yes. people are. Yes. But, um, <laughs> I was like, oh, my, oh, my goodness. This is just... Uh, yeah, yeah, really. Uh, 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 Pharrell and Chad Hugo, nerd. That uh, she wants to move song. I used to, I used to really like that song. I think I'm giving a little bit, uh, a little bit too much of a window into what I was like <laughs> as a, uh, as a, as a, uh, as a late 
18, early, early, early 20s young men. So I'll leave it just there. I just felt like it uh, deserved it deserved to be uh, spoken about this uh, this soundtrack. It was uh, it was fantastic if you were from a particular generation. No, you're right. It was, and the DMX and the Get Low just it made it. It didn't feel contrived because it almost you're like, well, well, yeah. What else would would they have on the soundtrack? It had to be those things. One hundred percent, mate. Yeah, yeah. So the soundtrack was just uh, it was one of those things that, that you know. I don't know if I should be ashamed to say, but I'm not ashamed to say that I really enjoyed it. So yeah, it was a good time. Yeah, I definitely think the soundtrack let. Uh, lent a lot to the movie um, and so it definitely worked in that way especially having a lot of those songs that you know were on the soundtrack or were included in the movie like they worked uh, within the confines of the movie really anchored it in the time period so yeah you could immerse yourself in the late 90s early 2000s I mean the, the baggy pants did that as well I mean, there, was, <laughs> there was no forgetting the era the costuming yeah. is very indicative of where we are in time like <laughs> No one needs a map for that. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Absolutely. Well, we'll move on now to look at the acting performances and I'll just give you a bit of a run through about the actors and the characters that they played. So we had Samuel L. Jackson as Coach Ken Carter. We had Rob Brown as Kenyon Stone. Robert Richard as Damian Carter, Rick Gonzalez as Timo Cruz. We had Nana Gabonwonyo as Junior Battle, Antoine Tanner as Worm, uh, Channing Tatum as Jason Lyle, and Ashanti as Kira. Um, now, obviously, seeing all those uh, actors, actors being included in this movie, um, and feel free to mention any others that I haven't uh, what did you guys make of the acting performances as a whole? And was there anyone that you potentially wanted to single out in terms of their performance at all? Uh, I, I enjoyed the, uh, the acting roles. I mean, Samuel Jackson was Samuel Jackson. I've got a, I've got a semi hot take on him. Like I don't dislike him in movies, but he, he doesn't become his characters. He's always Samuel Jackson, you know, and I feel like, even this one, it seemed like he tried really hard to not be Samuel L. Jackson, but he still was, you know. Um, there's just something about him. I, I totally get that because, I, as I was saying, I watched this on like a Samuel L. Jackson run and he is definitely, he brings himself to the character. You know, you, you will never mistake who is playing that role because it is always him and, and he's quite clear that, you know, it has its hallmarks, it's got the speeches, the the sharp tone and the eyes. For me, it's the eyes with Samuel Jackson. <laughs> gives you that look of like staring into your soul. Yeah, yeah. The eyes definitely have it with, uh, with the Samuel Jackson. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that take went over well. I was expecting to get slaughtered for that a little bit. <laughs> um, um, it's a pretty good list of actors though. I mean, you look at those names and there's a lot of people who've gone on to, to pretty successful careers. Ashanti... Rick Gonzalez and, of course, Channing Tatum. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, they all they all went on. I I really enjoyed. I don't know whether it was so much the acting or the costuming, but uh, Worm I always really associated with Kobe Bryant. You know, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether it was the hairstyle or whether it was the the attitude. I mean, there was a little bit of the "I'm the best on the court" attitude that he had. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, being bald, 
probably doesn't hurt either. Um, but he, he did kind of strike me. A li- like There was always a reminder when I watched him about Kobe. And I wonder whether there was anything in, you know, the actor framing himself as part of that or not. Yeah, I think that's a good shout. Um, he that With Worm particularly, and there's a couple of guys in the team. I think Junior, you know, it was, a, it was just something when I was watching it anyway, I couldn't quite um, articulate or put my finger on what it was, but you could tell that they were channeling, you know, NBA players, you know, they, they kind of modelled the, the way that they, uh, that they carried themselves and their attitudes um, in training and on the court and stuff. Um, yeah, I think that's a terrific shot. And I just want to say, um, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time taking trips down memory lane here, but uh, Stewie in the late 90s, early 2000s was a big, big fan of Ashanti. So I was very pleased to see her on screen for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did enjoy that window into your personality. <laughs> <laughs> that's one that I enjoyed. But it, it, it's interesting you say that you think they channeled themselves as NBA players because that to me was always what Coach Carter wanted. And That's... so the fact that the actors went and did that and kind of modeled, you know, picked one um, really does shine through and, and seem to tie into the whole premise of the movie as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's 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 a terrific shout. That's probably um, part of the reason why the movie works so well is because there's like these layers of of, of you know the the true story and then the actors you know buying into the the professionalism as well and yeah yeah I think it's I think that's uh, that's I, I do shout. wonder um, how many push-ups do you reckon they did in the course <laughs> of this movie? How many push-ups and how many suicides do you reckon? Do you reckon <laughs> Because obviously we didn't see all, but I reckon that by the end of that scene, they did each more push-ups and suicides than what he set Cruz. Mr. Cruz, I'm impressed with what you've done, but you came up short. You owe me 80 suicides and 500 push-ups. Please leave my gym. I'll do push-ups for him. You said we're a team. One person struggles and we all struggle. One player triumphs, we all triumph, right? I'll do some. I'll run suicides too. <laughs> what do you reckon yeah yeah i think channing tatum can probably attribute his tremendous physique to uh his time on set on coach carter probably yeah, yeah. solely <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i just know that um 
whatever amount of suicides they did or push-ups they did was so much more than I've ever done in my life. Um, <laughs> but I think it is my favorite line about that is that when he um when they're doing suicides, the very first, like to the, the first time he sends them to the baseline and they jog the suicides in suicides and he's like, it's suicides, not homicides. Like <laughs> do it yourself. It's <laughs> a good line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is interesting the discussion that you guys were having about some of the players uh, or the actors portraying the characters of the, on the team in this movie, sort of modeling themselves off of NBA players. And uh, I think that that is also true for Samuel L. Jackson in playing Ken Carter. Uh, you know, you, as you sort of said, also like, you know what you're going to get with Samuel L. Jackson. Like he seems like he's the perfect man for any role that needs to sort of be that sort of like, authoritative but also like intimidating person who uh just delivers like a sort of no-nonsense approach to like uh whatever sort of character that he is asked to play as well and so I think that he did that really well in Coach Carter but I also have some comments here from the real Ken Carter about what he thought about Samuel L. Jackson's performance I love uh, the prep that you do, Jason. I love the prep that you do because this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> so he obviously got asked uh, what he thought about Samuel L. Jackson and his portrayal of him in Coach Carter. Uh, this was his comment. He says, you mean Mr. Samuel L. Jackson. I call him Mr. Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> in four months of shooting the movie, Mr. Samuel L. Jackson never stumbled in one single line. Not only did he know all of his lines, he knew everyone else's lines too. The gentleman had a photographic memory. He's a true professional. Every day he showed up, he was extremely prepared. You see a lot of young actors like Channing Tatum. It was his first time ever being in a movie. Same with Ashanti. And we'll get to that a little bit later too. Um, Mr. Jackson was able to coach them as long as we were shooting the movie. So that also, uh, you know, shows you how much sort of Samuel L. Jackson dedicates his time to teaching uh, up and coming film stars or people who are in their first acting gig, um, you know, while he's shooting a big movie of his own, um, he's also providing his own form of coaching, not in the form of basketball, but in the form of acting to his acting peers. I want to get, like, I know we, we've jumped well and truly onto a tangent here, but <laughs> if you look back at that quote, and if you read it exactly as it is written, most of the way through, it is Mr. Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. He is not known as Sam. He is not known as Sam Jackson. He is not known as Jackson. He is only and always Samuel L. Jackson. There's people with one name. There's plenty of, and like, you know, we as LeBron, Kobe, Cher, like one name stars. Yeah. Samuel L. Jackson has to have all three parts or it's not him. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you said Samuel Jackson, I'd be like, who are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah. You need the L in there. You need the whole name. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the real Ken Carter did continue by saying about Samuel L. Jackson, I watched him transition into me within the first 15 minutes of us meeting. I'm looking at him do me with my hand movements and my speech pattern. Our plays were named after my sisters. He asked me what their names were and what the plays were. When we got on court, we'd run an out-of-bounds play and he'd be tapping his head saying, Hattie Jean, Hattie Jean. When he wanted to <laughs> run... <laughs> 
that's exactly right. When we wanted to run to run a high pick and roll, he's hollering out, run Linda, run Linda. So he knew all the plays, um, which again, just a credit to Samuel L. Jackson's acting. Just in continuing on with this particular quote or a separate quote about the acting portrayals uh, from Ken Carter himself, he said, some of the kids you see on the team had ne- never done any type of acting. Uh, we spent three months training the actors on how to play basketball. We found real basketball players and taught them how to act. We were actually playing games that was live scrimmages. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing. Um, you know, after the first three days or so, they started putting in extra time so they wouldn't miss their shots. So effectively, you know, everything sort of flowed. Um, and yeah, I think just like insights like this, um, especially from Ken Carter, who this movie is all about, basically, um, giving you an insight. And obviously, we talked at the start as well about how much of a consultant on this movie that Ken Carter was. I think that these quotes sort of like, you know, cement that. When you go back and edit this, I want you to point out that Stewie and I said they played live basketball <laughs> about 25 minutes before you told us that. Yeah. <laughs> what a what a fun gig though, right? Like just to be like a, a just a young basketball player, they go, Hey, you want to be in a movie with Samuel Jackson? That's I mean, fantastic. It beats doing two a days in football pads for a movie like Remember the Titans every yeah. time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's tremendous. That's great. I, d- I didn't realize that it was um, Channing Tatum's first ever ever movie that he'd done. Yeah, he does feel like he's been around forever and a day. Yeah, he really does. Like he's really cemented in the popular culture. It's, it's, it, you can't imagine the beginning. You know, yeah. he's just there all the time. Yeah. yeah. So it was the film debut of Channing Tatum and Ashanti. And fun fact: Ashanti was nominated for an MTV Movie Award for Breakthrough Female. She, however, lost to Rachel McAdams, who starred in Mean Girls in the same year. To be um, fair, to be fair, I think, I mean, I know Mean Girls is not a sports movie, but I think Mean Girls is going to come in ahead of Coach Carter for, for acting <laughs> performance, Rachel McAdams versus Asha. Yeah, that's a fair yeah, one maybe. for me. Yeah, I think um, that makes sense. It tracks, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. I'm not happy about it, but it tracks. It does. <laughs> so obviously, Ashanti was nominated for this award in, you know, obviously from her first acting performance. Unfortunately, Channing Tatum was not on the nominations list for the male equivalent of the award uh, that was won by John Heater um, from Napoleon Dynamite. Geez, what a golden year for movies, you know. It's, mean Girls was a, it was a, it was a decent movie, you know. Um, Napoleon Dynamite is just a classic. I really wanted to say the big one, then I wanted to drop the big F word, but it's <laughs> um, that, just a classic movie. Then we got Coach Carter. I mean, can you guys think of any other movies that came out this particular year? I don't know, but 05 is up there for me with 1994 as a movie year. Mm-hmm. 1994 is um, Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption right. and The Lion King, which is, you know, it's, that's pretty hard to top if you've got those three in one year. But 05 is pretty close. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a tremendous, um, tremendous lineup of films. 94 sounds great. That's, that's just the sweet spot for me, too. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Do we don't, you don't have to tell us how old you are, don't I said earlier, I'm in my uh, early to mid late thirties, so you know, <laughs> not ambiguous at all. 
we'll quickly touch on whether we found any relatable character in the film, whether it was a character overall, uh, characteristics of them, or maybe a particular line that they said in the movie. Uh, Stuart, would you like to go first on this particular one? Yeah, so as per usual, there's no specific character that I kind of relate to or anything like that. But there's a scene right at the start of the movie where, uh, where, where, where Coach Ken is talking to his wife about taking over the team. And he just says, the team, it's so bad. And I've had conversations uh, with partners of mine in the past where they have no interest in what I'm talking about and I'm just rambling about my sports team and I'm just like, they're so bad. And I just thought that is me sometimes. That is 100% me. So uh, That is me when the Swans lose every damn time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's my one. That's, That's what I got for you, mate. And Dan, any relatable character uh, that you felt? Yeah, I mean, we're developing a bit of a theme here because, I mean, for me, in a lot of ways, Coach Carter is the the relatable one um, in that I, uh, as you will both well know, um, can demand quite a lot of people that I work with. Um, And, and, you know, I I try and always back that up with my own, but um, there is an element of sometimes, you know, you find out that the team has been out at a party and you just go, oh, <laughs> really? Those bleepy, bleepy, bleep. <laughs> get out of the court. Get out of the pool, Damien Carter. It's time to go. <laughs> yeah, look, and, and I used to run um, youth camps. And so there have been times where it has been my job to say to no one ever named Damien Carter. Get out of the pool. It's time to go home. Yeah. Get dressed, young man. Yeah. yeah. I think for me, uh, for this one in particular, uh, probably every character like at the school. So uh, in terms of like the players, uh, Coach Carter, everyone, um, just because they were chanting Richmond. Uh, and oh. I on a weekly basis. <laughs> You're not going to try and get the uh, Rich Watt chant going at the next Richmond game, are you? Or? Oh, that's already a chant. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, whenever they chanted that, I, I did it the same and, uh, you know, maybe belted out a bit of a you know, yellow and black, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we move on to our last segment now where we ask, if you could have a basketball-related movie get made, what would it be and why? Dan, we'll go with you first. I think if I was going to have a basketball-related movie made, I always liked Like Mike um, and that real underdog story. And there's part of me that thinks that a movie about someone like a Patty Mills or a Luka Doncic where at 17, 18, you're just, you're good enough to play at the top level. Um, You know, and and someone particularly like Luka who is not what we associate as being, you know, typically basketballish. You know, he's 6'6", which I say 6'6", and like it wouldn't be looking up like this for me. Um, But, you know, he, he didn't have the the abs and the biceps that we associate with some of the basketballs like LeBron, for example. Uh, But he is just so good. And I think that's kind of, you know, maybe Steph Curry is a little bit in the same reading that like they've got a relatable 
personality and, and that because they're not the they are the underdog to an extent they don't look like a basketball player that we associate and then they get out on court and there's like magic in their hands and the ball just talks when they want it to um so i think probably something like that you know a, an underdog story of a, a basketball who's not a typical 610 physical force basketballer I like that idea, man. And you gave me just enough time to think of a couple of ideas on the spot like that. Um, so, you know, just going with my theme of this podcast uh, by carbon dating myself a little bit. Um, I've got two ideas. My first one is, uh, you know, there used to be a, a TV show called Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Um, I'd like to bring that back, maybe in movie form. If you don't know about it out there, kids, Google search it and have a look. It's a good one. My I'm other idea... now. and my other idea was um you know back in the back in the 90s um the nbl was having a bit of a moment you know it it was pretty big um i'm from adelaide so adelaide 36ers were you know relatively successful um you know they'd lose to the melbourne tigers often and that used to bother (laughs) me but uh, (laughs) you know um you know it was it was just a bit of a moment that i that i kind of feel like it's a little bit forgotten um, and I feel like that'd be a good way to kind of, you know, just give people a bit of nostalgia and say, Hey, this is when we did it right. And, uh, maybe if they could make a movie with, you know, your, uh, your Mark Davises and, and Mark Bradkeys and Andrew Gazers and, and all that in there, um, that'd be pretty good. And maybe we can, we can kind of finesse the script. So Adelaide 36ers win a few more instead of, uh, going down in crushing circumstances in the finals all the time. I can see Andrew Gaze being a consultant on that one. <laughs> and with his wise crack ass, who knows <laughs> what would happen. We could get Andrew Gaze to play Lindsay Gaze, you know? He's got the grey hair now, so I oh, <laughs> love that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so much has been made about the rise of the NBL now. Like, it would be good to sort of document that, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago as well and, you know, just where it sort of all started and the first sort of rivalries and all that sort of stuff, um, just to build up to what it is now. Uh, my idea, um, I've gone a bit of a creative one, um, potentially one that I could see being made by Disney, like it sort of has the aura of a Disney movie, um, I guess. And it will look at someone who is a bit short, isn't too great at playing basketball or anything like that, but is still part of the team. And then overnight just shoots, grows. Oh, you were <laughs> um, talking about me. Sorry, mate. <laughs> grows, <laughs> grows into being the tallest player on the team, can dunk with ease and everything like that. And uh, just a movie looking at how that might come about uh, through a bit of movie magic and all this sort of stuff and um, how that, you know, affects their playing now and this this newfound height, you know? <laughs> I think that could be really fun for, like I said, like a sort of kids' cheesy Disney movie. I could see that uh, animated, an animated yeah. one, yeah? Yeah. Okay, and we could get NBA players to do the voices. Well, hang on, now we're hearing you to like Space Jam territory. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right well that does unfortunately now bring us to the end of the episode so dan stewart would you like to share your social media handles so people could follow you online well i am at decouple um wherever you get your social media fix 
you can find me at Stewie is sick of it on Twitter. Um, hit me up. Tell me what you think about my uh, my terrible ideas or my you know ambiguous age. Um, I'm at Stewie the sports guy on Instagram. And, uh, you know, listen to me on After Extra Time. And Goals on Film. I'm always on Goals on Film. I love this podcast. You do a great job, Jason. So do you, Stewie. It's always great to have you on. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Jace Herbs on both. You've been listening to Goals on Film. You can find Goals on Film on both Twitter and Instagram at Goals on Film Pod. Goals on Film is part of the Edge of the Crowd network. You can find Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, TikTok, at Edge of the Crowd. You can also view any of our stories, be it sport or culture-based, on our website, www.edgeofthecrowd. Until next time, thanks for listening.